Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. A couple of things are a little bit different about this episode. Firstly, Eduardo actually contacted me with some questions about some sword fighty stuff that we will get into in the interview. And I thought rather than have a bit of email tennis, we could just get on a call and have a chat. And so, well, why not record it so that you guys can listen in? So it's not the usual interview format. There was also a technical problem that I didn't recognize while we were doing it in that my audio is echoing from his end. And I tried to sort of edit it out, but I don't have those skills. So um, sorry for the echo. There's nothing I can do about it, but I think you'll find the interview enjoyable nonetheless. I'm here today with Eduardo Albert, who is an author and researcher with titles like Edwin, High King of Britain, and In Search of Alfred the Great, and Professor Tolkien of Oxford. So clearly he is one of us, although as far as I can tell, he has never wielded a sword. Am I doing you an injustice there, Eduardo? Have you ever wielded a sword? Um, I have a bit. Um, I would have liked to have wielded it more. I mean, my son... um uh, my middle son actually did quite a lot of uh, sabre fighting um, for, for quite a few years, and I'd have loved to do more. But to be honest, it was just too expensive. I couldn't afford to pay for him and for me to both to, 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 to do it. Um, okay. Now he stopped. Um, yeah, the problem is also being a writer is not actually a terribly well-paid profession. So I, uh, <laughs> it's one of the things I've got lined up to do when I have enough money to do it. Okay, so was your son doing sport fencing? Yes, he was uh, sabre fencing. But um, he's now interested in um, having a go at uh, HEMA as well. We're just trying to actually find a club that we can can get to that's not too far away to make it practicable. Okay, so whereabouts are you? Uh, We're in North London. Oh, okay. There there are quite a few clubs in London. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's um, it's also his A-level year, so... It's a question right. of whether he can um, fit, fit that in with everything else. But, uh, yeah, he'd certainly like to, and I'd certainly like to. So, I'm, I mean, I did do, I have attended a few, a uh, couple of HEMA classes um, and thoroughly enjoyed them. But it's just, as I said, <laughs> it was <it's> too <laughs> expensive for me to be able to continue with it. Yeah, and, and making it accessible is a, quite an issue because, you know, the equipment is expensive if you yeah. get to do it properly. And yeah. there's no, there's really no way around that at the moment. Um, I found that by getting my students to buy swords, and then mm. we had this permanent training facility in Helsinki, which is still there. Um, when students sort of, they bought a sword and they kept it in the sale, and then they would go off and do other things and maybe forget about training for a bit. If the sword was dusty or rusty, the rule was anyone could borrow it, <laughs> right? And so we could actually equip people with loner steel swords and loner masks um, without actually having to buy 20 steel swords and 20 masks. Okay, so, that's a good idea. Yeah, well, it, it was an accident. I mean, I wish I could take credit for it as an idea, but it was just one of those things that um, once we got a permanent training space, it just sort of happened naturally. Mm. And I saw these dusty swords lying around. I was like, well, hang on. That's not fair on... You know, we're storing these swords for people. Why don't we put them to use? Yeah. 
Yeah. So they made it a rule that everybody know. And, and the thing is, most people were totally happy with it. It's like, yeah, of course. I mean, I know I can't come training for a while, but by all means use the sword because otherwise it's just going to collect dust. So, yeah. but it is a hard problem and most clubs don't have a tr- permanent training space and most clubs can't afford just to buy tons of swords. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of them um, fairly high up in my list of things to, um, to, to, to actually try and, uh, do, do better when I have time. Um, it's, it's time and money, really, in its case. Yeah, absolutely. So you also write books about Warhammer. Uh, yeah, well, that's... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've done a fair bit of gaming as well in the, t- in the time. Right. And, uh, and the, to be honest, I mean, that's, I, getting a chance to run around in somebody else's universe and, and make stories about it, which is quite enjoyable. And also, I mean, it pays quite well. That's <laughs> the other reason... Um, you know, you've got a huge market of dedicated fans who are um, uh, interested in reading stories about it. Um, so that, that, that's it. You know, I am. Um, you are in sort of good company because like, I would say probably most of the listeners to the show are sword nerds, obviously, but they are, yeah. most of them are also gamers. Yeah. So, so actually having written books for the Warhammer universe, um, Gives you probably more street cred rather than less in this culture. Well, that's good to know in that case. And I mean, uh, yeah, uh, it's. It, I mean, it's basically great fun writing about guys with big guns blasting aliens. <laughs> sure, I, I should confess, I have never played Warhammer. I don't know the first thing about it. Um, no, well, it's it's. I mean, it's a huge, ongoing, involving shared universe. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Like, Star Wars is an obvious uh, um, parallel. Um, um, and it's an interesting example of how um, the talents of a, you know, a very large number of people have all been harnessed towards enhancing and creating the universe and the storylines within it. It's, you know, because of that, it's an extremely rich universe in which to, um, to write or, or to play. And I think that's... I think that's one of its key attractions for gamers and, and indeed people who are not gamers, but just like what, re, you know, reading stories setting the universe. Huh, that's an interesting thought. Because the... Okay, if the, if the universe is very highly developed and mm. lots of people have had an input, how do you keep, um, I don't know, consistency? Well, that's uh, because well, that, that's it. And you, know, you you can be caught up by um, some somebody coming up and saying that's not that's not the Warhammer law. But um, I mean, you try and keep within the the broad confines of the you know what's gone before. You can't um, change it completely. Mm-hmm. But it's also I mean, you're talking about a, a galaxy wide civilization. I mean, yeah, okay. it, it there's what's it five hundred billion stars in the galaxy. Um, okay. You know, within the so on this in this solar system, we have wizards. Damn yeah. it! <laughs> okay, exactly. So I mean, it's uh, you know, I mean, when you've got a, un- a galaxy that big, and you know, within the Warhammer uh, tradition, maybe a few hundred, maybe a thousand pl- stars and planets have been named and gone into. Uh, you know, you've got billions of them out there. Okay. So so yeah. so, what makes it Warhammer then? If you can just make um, it you want. Oh, well, it's generally because things are every, everything's grim, dark, and basically war goes on forever. Ah, 
Okay. Um, I think largely because it was originally set up as a galaxy in which, or a world in which to fight war games. So therefore, Fine. you need to ensure that war continues. Here's a funny thing, right? I've never seen anything about Warhammer in any detail, but I just <laughs> always assumed from the name, mm. it was a sort of Middle Earth style, medieval style, knights in armor kind of thing. Yeah. You're telling me it's spaceships. It's two. It started off as a medieval, uh, well, fantasy game, Warhammer. Oh, okay. And then yep. um, they created a sort of spin-off from it, Warhammer 40K, for, uh, set 40,000 years in the future, um, ah. which is a sort of science fiction, but with orcs, elves, um, goblins in space, as it were, firing, <laughs> you know, um, flying spaceships and space. things like that. And oh, that's fantastic. actually proved, if anything, uh, more popular than the original because um, basically, you know, goblins firing, firing blasters are more fun than goblins um, bashing you with a club. And um, so um, uh, the two universes continue to exist, Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, with people, some people play uh, within both of them, others, you know, specialise in one or the other. I've so far basically just written in the, the 40K, the sort of science fiction stroke fantasy version of it. Huh, that's fascinating. Now, uh, my assistant Katie, who does the transcriptions and writes the show notes and stuff for the podcast... Uh, she's always looking for that little sort of strap lining thing that is the title of the show. And I think <laughs> Goblins in Space with Eduardo Alves probably what she's going to settle on. Yeah, okay. Or that's... maybe make it Orcs in Space because they are actually called Orcs in Space. So, oh, okay. Orcs in Space. All right. Yeah. There we go. Oh. Um, you know, one of the factions are basically Orcs. So, um, okay. Know, lifted wholesale from Tolkien and so on. So, um, yeah. Um, it's in a certain sense, it's sort of taken a lot of uh, the fantasy and science fiction tropes, shoved them into a universe, and then said, well, let's fight and see what happens. <laughs> okay. And every good story depends on conflict. So yeah. if you have yeah, permanent exactly. war going on, you have all sorts of opportunities for... So I assume there isn't then goodies and baddies in the traditional sense. Uh, a big pun? I assume there isn't sort of... Tr- goodies and baddies in the traditional sense? Uh, not in the tra- traditional sense. I mean, um, the, the humans, the human universe um, there is, well, I mean, it's, it's a fairly grim and you know, not a sort of society you'd really want to live in. It's um, sort of a combination of all the worst aspects of Soviet Union and um, um, sort of medieval um, inquisitors. Um, oh but on the other hand, it's better than being, um, you know, having a horde of tyranids, which are basically sort of, you know, the um, um, alien, acid-spewing aliens who just want to convert everything into gloop. Yeah. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Probably better to be alive under a weird Soviet feudalism than to yeah. be turned into gloop by aliens. Oh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also gather you're... You have a sort of deep and abiding interest in... Okay, you describe it on your website as what happened in Britain after the Romans left and before the Normans arrived. Yeah. So I guess what most people would call Dark Ages, yeah. but we prefer to call it... Early medieval. medieval period. Yeah. 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 Okay, I mean, so... Now, I was just going to say, the reason that came about was, um, um, you know, I'm... I'm Londoner, being born in, and um, yeah, I was a classic example of somebody who didn't really believe that anything north of Watford existed. 
And um, okay. but then um, my uh, my wife, um, um, she her sister is an archaeologist, and her her sister's husband is an archaeologist, and they um, were, started to dig up in Bamber Castle in Northumberland. Uh, and okay. a couple of other um, friends, which is still ongoing, called the Bamber Research Project. And um, they invited us up to go and visit and see what they were doing. So um, basically, I ran out of re- excuses as to why not to go. And yeah, we, we, uh, we uh, I think it was 2001, 2002, we drove up. Uh, I'd never even heard of Bamber before, actually, and I'd never been to Northumberland. And I still remember when we were driving there, we'd got to Seahouses, which is the uh, town just south of Bamber, turned up the coast road. And um, there I saw the Bamber Castle. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's oh, a huge, it. yeah, it's jaw-dropping. I mean, I, 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 I'd never seen a picture of it before, so it was completely fresh to me. And wow. it was literally jaw-dropping. I, I'd never seen anything like it. It sits on this huge outcrop of the Great Wind Sill, um, a um, ge- major ge- geological formation in the north, uh, right by the sea, uh, sort of commands the sea, the 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 land and the sky, everything. And um, I, I was amazed. I'd never really heard about it. And then we were, arrived, got talking to Paul, uh, my brother-in-law, and Rosie and the archaeologists there. And they were telling us about the history of Northumbria, the uh, the kingdom that they were uncovering there, because Bamburgh had been the the headquarters, the stronghold uh, of the kings of Northumbria. And um, and it was fascinating. I, I, I knew nothing about it. I don't, um, yeah. um, my schooling had sort of skipped over that period between four ten <laughs> and six six ten sixty six completely, really. So I started learning about it. And um, Paul um, said that in fact he had been a publisher had approached him to ask him if he was interested in doing a book about the findings that they, they were making there. And he said he'd been interested, but simply hadn't got the time. So um, I offered. I said, well, look. You know, I've got the writing skills, you've got the knowledge, let's, um, let's do a book together. So uh, uh-huh. we collaborated and did um, a non-fiction book called uh, Northumbria, The Lost Kingdom, uh, which was the history, uh, history and archaeology of Northumbria, uh, telling something of, of what their finds and their finds of the previous archaeologists there. And it was fascinating. Um, you know, it was opened up the huge key to the foundations of Britain, because... Um, if you think about it, Britain is a single island, and uh, there's no there's no a priori reason why it should be split into Scotland, England, and Wales. Um, right. You know, three separate countries within one n- not huge island, um, and all those foundations were actually laid in this time that we're talking about, particularly um, these seventh, eighth, seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, and. Uh, and it was also when um, the pagan Anglo-Saxons became Christian. Um, Northumbria itself became, in the 7th century, a cultural and technological and scholarly um, hot, um, hot, you know, hot, uh, hot point. It was, um, scholars went from there all around uh, Europe, and it was, uh, scholars from there um, were key players in the Carolingian Renaissance. And it was fascinating. So um, we wrote that book. And then I also, during the course of that, learned about three successive kings of Northumbria, uh, Northumbria Edwin, Oswald, and Oswiu, whose stories made an amazing dramatic arc. And I thought 
it would be, well, I thought basically somebody has surely written about them in the past, uh, but it turned out no one had, so I thought, well, I'll do it. So I did those as um, uh, a trilogy of historical fiction novels, Edwin, Oswald, and Oswiu, which have um, yeah, which have done really quite well. And uh, But you know, my aim with those was to actually do them more as an imaginative history rather than historical sure. fiction, to stick... Uh, as closely as possible to the historical record, of which there isn't a huge, you know, it's still quite thin at this point, but to stick to what we do know, and then make it plausible within the context of the history and archaeology of the time, um, in which aim I was helped by the fact that I'd already written a non-fiction book about it and had on tap some of the best archaeologists in the country on the, on the, um, on the era. So, um, that would, that's how that that would really help. Yeah, it was, it was hugely helpful. I mean, I've had some... You know, long, well, many, many long and fascinating conversations with Paul and uh, the other archaeologists about uh, the time, the period, and and the warriors of the time. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, you first contacted me because you're writing something about historical martial arts. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it's more complex than that. Um, okay. One of the before. Uh, Paul and Rosie and the team began excavating at Bambra in um, early, uh, the turn of the millennium. In the uh, late 60s and early 70s, um, a, uh, one of the first, second generations of archaeologists, a man called Brian Hope Taylor, had excavated there. He's a sort of almost legendary figure within the field and a classic example of those archaeologists who were largely self-taught um, but who did extraordinary work in the 50s and 60s. Um, he did um, a sort of groundbreaking excavation at Ad Geffen, which is the site of uh, another royal site in Northumbria, and it's still a classic of archaeological literature. And he also excavated a Bamber Castle. Um, but like, I mean, it's almost a tragic story with him. With him. It's a, archaeologists can become very possessive about the sites they um, uh, they excavate it's their site and he excavated the castle but never ever he left in a hurry to go and do some work elsewhere I think on York Minster if I remember right never returned um, oh. so all his finds were uh, basically in his house and in his uh, uh, be, and in his garage I mean he became a recluse you know you wouldn't, you wouldn't get away with that these days well no it was literally I mean and in fact he died he um, he became a recluse and you know they um, right at the beginning they, uh, of the Bamber research project they tried to get in contact with him to find out where he dug and things like that but he, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't giving anything away then um, okay. sadly he, he passed away and um uh, some of his ex-students realised that, in fact, all his finds were in danger of uh, being lost. So um, uh, some of them went to, to check, and they found his house. Basically, um, the um, house clearers had moved in, and they were beginning to shove everything. In. They got a skip outside. Literally, they had a skip outside. And oh they were my beginning god! To, um, um, uh, you know, put things into the rubbish. Um, luckily, one of the ladies, I was her name, Diana. She was she was with the. Um, Historical, um, what's its name? The Royal and Ancient Com- Committee, uh, the Scottish um, Historic um, Com- Commission, and she basically shut up her badge. Said, you know, it actually had no authority whatsoever. But she said, "Stop! You, you know, you, this is, a, you know, you must stop." Um, and she sort of flashed this badge to try and get, and you know, they did. And then, um, you know, 
basically she and some other of his ex-PhD students came down with a big lolly and, and, you know, Hope Taylor had become a hoarder by the end. I mean, literally, they said there wasn't even a place for him to to lie down in his house. Wow. Um, so they had they cleared all of that stuff. Then there was also a garage with all his finds and records as well, which was unfortunately leaking. So a lot of those oh got spoiled. God. So all of that had to be taken up. They took it up to Edinburgh. Um, some of the water damaged stuff had to be frozen in order to try and preserve it. Um, yeah, yeah. And then they were trying to you know sort it through. I mean, these this was the records of digs. Uh, at Bamber, but Birch, I mean, lo- digs all over the countries, um, and none of them have been published apart from Mount Geffrin. So huge amounts of material and um, you know extraordinary finds, and um, some of it was uh, about Bamber. So you know, the people up in Edinburgh con- contacted Paul and the rest of the Bamber Research Project and said, you know, do you come and have a look, see if you can find anything that's Bamber related amongst this mess? Um, so they went there and. So, you know, the, you know, it was a it was you know, it was almost a large warehouse full of stuff they had there. Um, so wow. going through it, and um, you know, they Paul and the others they located a lot of Bamber stuff. They worked, began to work out he had a rather idiosyncratic system of labelling it, but they eventually worked out what was Bamber related, and um, and sorted through that. And amongst that, they found a suitcase uh, which had. Um, Two swords uh, uh, and an axe head. Um, uh, Hope Taylor had excavated those from Bamber in the um, uh, late 60s. And, um, he just had a suitcase with two swords and an axe head just yeah, in his leaky in garage. Tissue. Yeah, exactly, in a garage. Um, <laughs> and um, wrapped up in a bit of tissue paper. Um, I'm going to have to put a content warning on this episode because it is... Horrific. Yeah, I mean it's. Yeah, I mean it. It was all stuff that he clearly meant to write up at some point, but it never happened. Um, and you know, it's uh, so they were trying to. Okay, they they got this, and Paul, he was he he got feeling that this these swords um, were 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 special. I mean, they're obviously corroded and deeply corroded and everything. So he sent it off to um, uh, the Royal Armouries to ask them to have a have a look at it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, a little while later, he got a phone call from David Starley, the um, archaeometallurgist there, and he said that these these are extraordinary. These two blades, um, one of them, uh, which was an intact blade but broken, was a sort of four four strand pattern welded blade, um, similar um, probably to the um, uh, the one at Sutton Hoo. Uh, the other one, uh, which was. Uh, broken in half, you've got the tang and half the blade, but not the other half. Um, it was a six-stranded uh, pattern welded blade, which is um, you know, almost unique in um, uh, Starley's experience. He thought it was an extraordinary looking uh, sword. So, you know, we had this blade. The, the context, the, then there was a case of trying to find out the context in which it had been found, because at the, you know, they, basically they were found in the suitcase, so um, where they come from. Uh, and after a great deal of detective work in the records there, they eventually found out the context and the time in which it had been found. So it was, um, they found where it was excavated from a period uh, from the 10th, 10th century in um, the west ward of the, of the castle, all three of them together. Possibly there, there was fire damage as well around there. They suspect they'd been in a um, 
blacksmiths, which had burnt down and then been lost amongst the debris um, oh, when, they, okay. when the when the forge uh, burnt. Um, yeah, they may have been there waiting for repairs, or may have been simply re- relegated to being scrap metal, as they were both um, broken. Though more likely, I would imagine they'd have been um, they were all yeah, waiting yes. to be reforged. Yeah, yeah swords of that quality, they would mm. very often they would, if they break, they get forged welded back together. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that's most likely. But then it looks like there was a uh, um, uh, that that was a broken uh, a fire, and that was what happened. So um, so you have these extraordinary blades, and then. Yeah, uh, Starley or David Starley uh, also dated them to um, the the seventh century, early uh, early to mid seventh seventh uh, century. So you've got uh, blades that have been in use for three hundred years, um, and amongst the most technologically sophisticated swords built uh, made in that era. Um, so. Paul and I decided uh, to actually use this this sword, um, these swords, as, uh, in our new book, as a sort of key into the um, Anglo-Saxon world. Um, we're looking at how um, an obscure, you know, an, an, an anonymous blacksmith at uh, this period, um, you know, both both how he went about creating blades like this, looking at the um, forging of them. Um, the uh, you know, sourcing of the ore and things like that, the trade patterns that enable this to happen, um, the the furnishing of the sword. Um, what one of the things we know from other findings about Northumbria is that they're, they're say with garnets and things. Some of those come from as far away as um, Sri Lanka. And, wow. um, you know, so you're looking at you know, you know again, and you wouldn't expect. Um, in the seventh um, century, to have trade patterns this extensive, but um, yeah, they found a lot, lots of that. They've um, also copperites, which are basically sort of fossilized um, poos, um, yeah. with um, uh, you know things like lentils and um, uh, other uh, elements within them. So they've got quite ex- uh, um, exotic diet elements, dietary elements coming into uh, uh, on, on trading routes into Bamba. And of course, because Bamber is on the on the coast, it's um, uh, it's it's easy, what well, relatively easy for shipping to, um, boats to arrive with exotic goods. So um, yeah, so we're looking at that, the sword, and the warrior co- culture that um, required it and um, and then wielded it for hundreds of years. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Okay, what do you need from me? Well, so what we're interested in asking you is about the actual sword fighting. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, within, I mean, obviously we know there's no, um, sadly, no uh, uh, fencing manuals from um, uh, this time and not for many hundreds of years later. But True. within the context of the weapons themselves, and, you know, I mean, we're sure that they would have been used in, in concert with the with shields, the two things would have been used together. Sure. Um, you know, how how would a warrior wielding a weapon like the Bamba sword have used it? <laughs> okay. okay. Um, this m- might be better if we get together sometime with actual swords and actual shields, mm. and I show you like in person. Oh, I'd love because that, that might make a bit more. That, that might make a bit more sense. Yeah. Um, but okay. Firstly, the 
Swords. Okay. The swords of that period, they tend to have very short handles. Yeah. Which means that if you try and hold them the way most people want to hold a sword, let mm. um, me just grab a dagger. This, this is not a. This, this is sort of based on an early 17th century pattern, but mm. at least I can sort of. Yeah. So, and I'm going to try and make it work for the listeners too. Most of the time, you hold a sword so that, as if you were chopping or cutting, the edge is in line with the forearm. Mm. Okay, but most of those uh, sort of that period, it's incredibly uncomfortable to hold them that way. Yeah. Okay, and my feeling is they would be held with the edges across the forearm, which creates this angle between the blade and the arm. Oh, yeah. Right, and what that does is, firstly, it makes the grip really, really comfortable. Secondly, it makes stabbing very easy because it lines things up very nicely. But most importantly, I think, is it allows you to angulate around an obstacle like a shield. Yeah. Okay. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So if you think about the bits of the body that are exposed, they're wearing a helmet, they're wearing a hauberk of some description. So they have mail going probably down towards the elbows, mail down towards the knees. Yeah. So cuts to those areas aren't going to do a great deal of damage. Mm. And most of these swords are not really optimized for thrusting. They have quite wide blades all the way to the tip, and the tip is, tends to be rather round. Yeah. Yeah? So they, to me, they're obviously slicing weapons more than thrusting weapons. And some of them are way so flexible that thrusting with them is probably not going to work very well. Yeah. For thrusting, you have a spear, and that will go through a male shirt, no problem. But the male shirt protects you against incidental thrusts, lower-powered arrows, and it protects you against cuts. Yeah. Okay? But if you have this angulated grip, even without being able to see your opponent because your shield's in the way or their shield's in the way, you can angulate the blade over the top and slice at the face, Okay, yeah. And you can angulate below and slice at the legs. Yeah. Okay. And there are, I can think of at least one example in one of the Viking sagas where somebody famously cut off both of somebody's legs with a single stroke. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is totally plausible. Yeah. High level, difficult, requires a beautiful sword that's been beautifully and freshly sharpened. Yeah. And it requires an absolutely perfect cut. Yeah. So it, it is a feat worthy of saga, yeah, um, but it's not unreasonable. Yeah. Um, there's one of the um, skeletons they excavated at the, um, uh, there's a graveyard outside the castle. Uh, it was an example of just what could be done with these weapons, because the man had been um, sliced basically diagonally in two from the shoulder down to not quite, hadn't quite emerged from uh, above his hip, but literally wow. had gone through he'd been cut diagonally in half. Um, you know, uh, working out, Paul was working out the, um, the, uh, the leverage necessary. And we think what happened is the guy had been stunned and fallen to his knees. And then somebody had, um, sliced him down with a diagonal, uh, slice from, from the shoulder down through his body. Okay. Um, 
possible with a single-handed weapon. That again, that requires real skill. Yeah. Yeah. But these were professional warriors in yeah, in a warrior culture. Yeah. So their equivalent of a not very good fencer is probably better than anybody we have today. Yeah, well, well I would expect so. I mean, they, they, right. they, yeah, that was what they did, wasn't it? It was fight. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And one would expect they'd be supremely good at it. Right. And, you know, you don't make a pattern-welded sword with mm. this incredibly expensive and beautiful pattern on it. Mm. And, and the, the point of that pattern welding is to create this tough and flexible weapon in a period where you couldn't produce iron very uh, sorry you couldn't produce very consistent steel yeah so what it does is it makes it more consistent yeah um and you get you can get a beautifully incredibly sharp edge on them and if the uh if the layers go all the way to the edge because sometimes you have like a pattern welded core and then a, a simple steel yeah, strip welded yeah. around it to create the cutting edge but if the pattern weld goes all the way to the edges as mm. it sometimes does you also get these micro serrations yes which yeah. make for a, a very good slicing action yeah. I actually have a pattern welded sword on the wall behind me yeah. <laughs> a thing of glory and gorgeousness I know they are wonderful weapons aren't they I mean, um, yeah, they're beautiful things and that, you know, that's another aspect of it within the warrior culture I mean you they're extensively described within the, the literature. Um, but also, you think, because the pattern is so eye-catching, if you're in, you can imagine being in a, in a shield war or something and then seeing somebody draw a sword like this on you and you think, oh, bugger. Oh, yes. Oh, dear. My day just got a lot worse. I'm yeah, probably a lot shorter. Yeah. yeah, because you think not only is the weapon itself um, likely to do more damage, but also clearly the person wielding it has, uh, is a highly experienced and you know warrior who's been given this. Yeah. So, you know, you, and they, you know, they were massively expensive. expensive. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So huge signs of favour. Um, you know, I mean, we're yeah, we're talking about hundreds of man hours of work in in the creation of the blade. So they are massively, uh, you know, vastly valuable implements that. Yeah, I, I think of them as like the sports car of the period. Like, if you are a rich kid, you might be driving around in a Ferrari. Um, pretty much everyone has some kind of car. Yeah. And, but you know, my wife's Nissan Micra is no match for, for Indeed, yeah. your top of the range Land Rover or your top of the range Ferrari or whatever it is. Exactly, yeah. Um, and they also they did have these more chopping blades, say uh, axes, yeah, right, which have that fa- fantastic sort of triangular bit where you have this like this escarpment, which puts an awful lot of metal right behind the bit that you're going to chop with, yeah, yeah. So the balance of that, I, I've handled a few, and my feeling is that if you need to like hack through somebody's helmet, that's the tool you'd use. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to like slice somebody's face open and cut their legs off, mm. you'd be using the sword. Yeah. But again, I many of the princes and nobles and what have you would have a sword and a sayax and a spear and they'd all be beautiful. Mm. I think pretty much everyone has some variation on a sayax because they are much, much easier to make. Yeah. So much cheaper. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how you'd use them, 
the, the, the set axe is, is held in the ordinary grip with the, mm. with the edge in line with the forearm. Okay, yeah. And I would, but I would think that the swords are held in, in this sort of yeah. um, thumb on the blade kind of grip. Yeah. And funnily enough, some of the ancient bronze swords mm. have a very clear, like, depression in the blade for mm. the way your thumb goes. Okay. Yeah, so there's no question that many swords over the last many thousand years have been held in this way. And we even see it. Sorry? Is there a name for that sort of grip? Well, none that has any real currency um, because, okay, we see it most commonly in historical martial arts in the Lichtenau system. Mm. where a lot of people do a lot of a lot of people's interpretation of mm. Lichtenau swordsmanship involves this sort of motion where you have the sword held sort of, uh, yeah. above the head with the flap pointing up and it's much more comfortable to hold it that way if you just put your thumb on the flap yeah. and then you can you can sort of helicopter back and forth mm. in what we call a spheric power and uh, you have a crump power where you have that same sort of angulation and you're cutting down with the yeah. true edge and then back up with the false. And that sort of motion, um, it's just, it's easier to follow the instructions in the, or the descriptions in the treatises if you hold the sword that way. And there are illustrations that tend to suggest it. Um, but it's not discussed anyway. Um, I don't, I can't think of a, Description of holding how to hold a sword specified in a manuscript or in a, in a source before the late 16th century. Okay. Um, and by that point, pretty much everyone was using sort of rapier type mm. weapons. And so you have this more forward grip with your yeah. finger over the cross card and, yeah. and sort of architecture of the hill protecting the hand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, we don't have a proper name for it. Most people call it, I don't know, thumb on the flat, or some mm. will call it the German grip mm. because of the Lichtenau yeah. connection. Yeah. yeah. But the key word, uh, um, aspect to it is it changes the geometry of the blade in the hand. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it changes it from being... Okay, when you hit somebody, mm. you want to organise your bones behind the strike, generally mm. speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think of like a fencing lunge, that's a perfect example of the point. Uh, the line that goes down the blade into the arm and down into the back foot is almost straight. Yeah. Okay. So your whole skeleton is organized behind the blow. Yeah. And we call that a grounded strike because when the weapon hits the target, the target hits back. And what you're trying to do is take that equal and opposite reaction and root it through your skeleton into the ground. Yeah. Um, without interference. So you want this kind of passive structure behind the weapon that gives you this support and penetration. And we call that grounding. Um, but we also have ballistic strikes where it's the speed and the sort of shape of the weapon itself that makes the difference. So for example, an arrow is ballistic, a bullet is ballistic. And if you are striking with this grip where you don't have your bones behind the cutting edge, you have um, speed in the tip that's doing the damage. And it works just fine, but you can't sort of push through it. You can't, if you're, if you're sort of 
slicing through something with the blade in line with the forearm, you can put sort of more muscle behind it, you can yeah. put more structure behind it. Yeah. If you have this sort of um, thumb on the flap kind of grip, yeah. um, you're going to be more slicing and you're not going to be pushing through. Yeah. So that's one, though, that's going to depend much more on the quality of the blade as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. It, the thing is, if with the advantage of having this sort of unsupported strike, and mm-hmm. anything else, is because it's unsupported, it's very, very quick. Yeah. You're moving a lot less mass. Yeah. Right? And if you get hit in the head with a steel bar that's mm. moving quickly, mm. the quality of the steel doesn't really matter so much. Yeah. <laughs> Right, um, but okay. If you look at these blades, you, you say they were discovered in a smithy where they're probably being repaired, and they're a couple of hundred years old already at that point, and they still exist. So either they weren't used, or their use did not wear them out. Yeah. Right. Now, if you're hacking blades together, they wear out really quickly. Yeah. Right, and if you're hacking your blade into a shield or hacking your blade into armor, mm. it's going to wear out pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, I've actually done experiments with this. Mm. Um, so it would suggest that they are only hitting soft targets, and they're not doing a lot of the kind of bish bash blade on blade sword fighting. You know, we think sword fight, we think crash, crash, crash. Yeah. Um, I don't think they were doing a lot of that with those blades. No, no. I mean, uh, our assumption is that um, there'd be very little sword-on-sword contact if their defence is down to the, uh, the the shield and distance and things like that. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's better to have your sword damaged than have your face damaged. Yeah. Yeah. So they would they would be doing mm. parries as necessary, but yeah, I don't think. I don't think their their sort of their, their default defense is to parry with the sword. I think their yeah. default defense is to get the shield in the way. Yeah, there's um, particularly the edge of the shield. Yeah, I mean one of the uh, sagas um, specifies a duel between two contestants, which uh, goes to uh, using three shields until right. and that's when it ends. So. Uh, clearly, it's not the swords that um, get hacked apart, it's the shields that get hacked apart in that sort of context. Right, and you, know, you have, in jousting, you have like break break a lance, break two lances. Mm. This challenge will break three lances against each other. Yeah. So I think that kind of Hong gang situation is, is often, we will break three shields against each other. Mm. Yeah. Right? And there's a risk in that period, uh, in that situation of people getting killed, but mm. really, what you're trying to do is demonstrate your prowess to everyone who's watching. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily require you to be killing people. Yeah, indeed. Uh, very much so. I mean, there were professional wars, and in, in that context, um, it wasn't necessary. I mean, you're, you're, you're after all, in this sort of early medieval um, 6th, 7th century, you're dealing with arms that are not going to be big. Right, um, right. Um, I think a bit later than this, in the later part of the 7th century, the uh, law called code promulgated by King Ene of um, Wessex defines an army as any group of men larger than 35. <laughs> yeah, so, um, 
you know, which that's not even a platoon. Exactly, yeah. But that's actually within the law code. That's uh, Hera um, is defined as a group of men larger than thirty-five. Now, by the time you get to the sort of Viking era, we're definitely talking about thousands, yeah, you know, much larger armies. But uh, in this uh, early um, early period, we're we're probably talking armies that um, you know lo- low hundreds at most, and sometimes not that. Yeah, but yeah, you know, within that context, when you're talking about uh, such relatively few numbers, um, elite warriors are going to make a difference in a way absolutely. that they wouldn't. Yeah, in the way they wouldn't when you're talking about you know ten thousand men fighting. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Oh, and I should have prefaced everything I just said by saying that we have no actual evidence of how they actually fought. Mm. So. My theory is as to how those weapons would be used to kill people dressed like that is entirely based on my speculation. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I can't point to a source and say, they're doing it like this. Look. Yeah, no. Absolutely. And even when we do have a source, people disagree about what it means. Yeah. I mean, that's all, all we can do with this because the sources yeah. are so, so sketchy for this period. Um, you know, I mean, for the... Was it two hundred years between four hundred and 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 six hundred? There's two historical documents for Britain. Right. You know that that's it. You've got um, Gildas, you know, his Jeremiah against the uh, rulers of the country, and then uh, the letter of Saint Patrick, a couple of letters of Saint Patrick, and that's it. And some runes and a few passing comments. But for two hundred years, that's all there is. So. Uh, um, Okay, my, my friend Ellen Lianiga, who's been on the show before, would like me to say at this point, I would guess, that the reason they're called the Dark Ages is lack of sources, not because it was some kind of particularly bleak and horrible period. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, yeah, if you look at it, it's actually a period of quite considerable sort of technological and social innovation. That's right. You know, that's yeah. one of the things, yeah, it's one of the things we're looking at in the book that, um, you know, the sword, the sword is an example, but lots of other things were created by anonymous uh, monks, artisans that had a profound impact on on, on our history. Um, Absolutely, you know, um, heavy plow, horse collars, over um, overflow, um, top top flow watermills, all those sort of things were done in this period. Where, you know, in fact. Um, you know, as I said, it was a time of foundations, and I suppose the thing about foundations is they 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 take the weight of the uh, subsequent structure, but they're hidden underground. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. So um, you know, and so many of them are hidden underground. It, you know, we just don't know how, where they came from, but they're fascinating. You see how how much else depends upon them. Yeah, and unfortunately, an awful lot. Stuff apparently ends up in people's garages. Getting yeah, no. <laughs> I'm I mean, still, I'm still kind of struggling to cope with that. Yeah, I mean, we're still, we're still going through uh, Hope Taylor's archive. He was a, he was a fascinating man. I mean, he was sort, of, you know, well, he was an artist, um, brilliant painter, um, you know, World War Two veteran. Uh, you know, he, he presented the the first major archaeological series on television in the 60s as well you know right. you know sort of blonde flowing locks I mean he was a you know um, amazing figure but uh, then retreated into um, into sort of uh, isolation for the last last 20 years of his life 
That's very sad. Yeah, it's a fascinating figure. But yeah, literally, uh, they're still going through his archive and, um, you know, they're working out what everything is and trying to actually, um, um, you know, digitize it and make it available to all the scholars. But there's huge amounts of it available there. Um, I also wanted to ask you, though, uh, something else about um, HEMA, um, historical... Because we read... um, my wife and I uh, both read your book on sword fighting, which I thought was fantastic, actually. Oh, sword well, fighting from writers, game designers, and martial yeah. artists. That um, yeah. I kept on reading out bits to my wife as well, because <laughs> she's um, a voice teacher. She teaches act- actors. It you know, okay, wouldn't okay. seem like a uh, correlation, but she. Um, uh, we thought the, the stuff on the pedagogy of teaching was brilliant, absolutely oh, brilliant. And, um, but she also found it really helpful in terms of teaching Shakespeare's um, fighting um, fight scenes and um, okay. you know the bit where you pointed out that uh, in a, a fight to the death just how aroused the um, participants are and how they can keep going even when mortally wounded for uh, you know for, for quite a long time afterwards is you know, it's, it's, it's very useful in a Shakespearean context where people are you know mortally wounded but continuing to spout um, pen, uh, pen, iambic pentameters um, you know, it's, uh, she said it actually makes those duels seem a bit more um, uh, plausible. Okay, that's a good um, idea. Um, but, um, yeah, we also were fascinated, though, about the history of Hemo, because what, you began in the early 1990s with the Dawn Duelists up in Scotland, didn't you? Uh, yeah. So what, yeah, well, the question is, what brought all these people together at this time, at that same time, to bring okay. the, the mar- historical European martial arts back back from the dead, as it were. Okay. What's really interesting, I think, is that at the same time that me and my friend Paul were sort of poking each other in a wishfully historical manner, mm. other people all over the world had started to do the same thing, and we only found out years later. Yeah, I know. So there was some kind of... Honestly, I think the electrification of fencing had a lot to do with it. Because when sport fencing became electrified, it became much less about classical fencing and much more about scoring tag according to the rules. Right? I'm not, not to denigrate it as a skill set or whatever, but it's, it's very much a sport... Mm. That no longer really has anything to do with how you would actually fight in a sword fight. Yeah. Okay. And the guy who's basically responsible for that is his name is Johan Harmenberg, and he's written an absolutely fascinating book called Epe 2.0, which describes. So instead of trying to make classical fencing fit, they just looked at the rules and figured out how to make this equipment work to make the light go off in the most reliable way possible. Right. Without without regard to you know making it look right so that a judge who is looking to see for the hits can see it, right? Yeah. And they were the first people to figure that out. And he won Olympic gold in 1980, I think. So it's in the 70s that basically it, it all went to hell from a from a sword person's perspective, and the sort of the modern sport was really born. Okay, so. I was doing sport fencing and martial arts and really what I wanted to be doing was sword fighting because swords, right? That's, a, that's an irreducible thing. 
right? Why, why swords? Because swords. Yeah. It's like, like why do people want to have kids? kids? Because kids. Yeah. You can't really explain it, right? So I was getting frustrated with sport fencing because it didn't feel like a sword fight at all. And I wasn't fully satisfied with the martial arts I was doing at the time because, well, Tai Chi had no weapons the way we were doing it. There's no weapons. Um, the Japanese weapon stuff I was doing was okay, but it's very formulaic. And having had sport fencing and actually like fighting people according to a set of rules and with protective equipment, but actually getting down and trying to make it work against a resisting opponent, we didn't really have any of that in the Japanese martial arts stuff I was doing with weapons nice. yeah. at the time. Um, so I m- met other people who were doing fencing because they wanted to do sword fighting. Yeah. And they were similarly sort of unconvinced by the sword fightiness of fencing. Yeah. And so we decided to kind of meet up and try fencing using a rule set that would make more sense. And make it feel more like historical martial arts. Oh, sorry, make it feel more like a sword fight. We didn't have an idea of historical martial arts yet. This was about, I guess, 92, 93. And my grandfather had been a fencer. And he had a book in his house. He was dead by this point, but my granny had it, called The Sword in the Centuries. And I found it and nicked it. I still have it today. <laughs> Um, and it basically, when you read it, you go, oh my God, there are actual books written in period by people who actually fought with swords. Mm. It'll actually tell you how to actually fight with swords actually properly. Like, holy crap. Yeah. Who, uh, who knew? Uh, yeah, like, wow. Yeah, I mean, how, how would you even know that? Yeah. So we started digging around in libraries and what have you, and I came across Donald McBain um, in the National Library of Scotland. Got that photocopied. And we found various other books, Sir William Hope. It started out mostly with small sword treatises because they're the most recent and therefore they're the most of them and they're easiest to find. You know, it's generally the case that the further back you go, the fewer sources there are and the harder they are to find. Right? Um, and we, so we started trying to kind of figure out how we would fence according to the descriptions in these books. Yeah. And that led us needing places to fight. So we would we would fight in, in the rain under Salisbury Crags in Edinburgh, and we would fight in courtyards and what have you. And we ended up sort of making friends with a pub owner in right in the centre of Edinburgh in the old town, where there's a courtyard outside the pub. It's a public courtyard. And we would fence there, and then go to the pub afterwards. Okay, right. And so there we are in the centre of historic Edinburgh, yeah. and people walking past will hear literally the clash of steel. Yeah. Right. And you're like, oh my god, I'm in the old town of Edinburgh, and it's literally 200 yards from the castle, and there's sword fighting. Right. And some people go, that's weird, and walk on. Yeah. But some people go, holy shit, what's that? Yeah. And so we would like just pick up people. Yeah. They would just see us practicing and go, can I have a go? And we'd be like, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, try this. Da, 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 da. And we would explain historical fencing to them, well, what we thought of as historical fencing. Um, and I guess by 
by 94, we'd kind of figured out that what we were trying to do is to recreate these arts from the book. Mm. Um, and we started a club basically so that we would have people to fight and a thing that they could join so that they could come. And also having a society meant that we could rent space to train, mm. you know, when it's because Edinburgh it rains a lot, yeah. swords get rusty. Yeah. And, you know, we would go and train in Craig Miller Castle at the weekend sometime. Mm. Um, and the castle people there were very, very nice to us. They were like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Just don't damage the castle, okay? Yeah. And they just let us, you know, have sword fights all over the castle. It's fantastic. And literally up and down the stairs. Um, yeah, health and safety was different back then. Um, so it sort of grew from there. And people who heard about it, I mean, like, some guys came over in, I think, 95 from America because mm. they'd somehow heard about us mm. and they came over and they did, like, a student exchange year in Edinburgh so that they could come and train with us. Oh, gosh. Right, it was that, like, odd and unusual and rare, but there was, there was something in the air because at the same time, uh, I just found out literally last week, I found out that in... 91, 92, in University of Toronto, mm. three members of staff had started to work from Degrassi. Mm. Right? Mm. It's like, wow, okay. Mm. Um, and we have clubs starting up in America. And yeah, I mean, you, you can't point to a single person going, ha, huh, this is a good idea, let's do this. Mm. Uh, so no, no one person invented it. It's just what we were doing in Edinburgh happened to be simultaneously, spontaneously occurring elsewhere in the world. Yeah. And the internet was just beginning to be a thing. Yeah. And so by the end of the 90s, there were forums and what have you, and yeah. people were starting to organize events that people would go to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then I just decided to do it for a living in 2001. But I decided in 2000, I opened my school in 2001. Yeah, yeah fantastic. It, it is strange, though, the way, as you said, it seemed to be something in the air, that it, it, it wasn't just you, it was people, yeah. and a number of different nodes around the world where people started picking up swords and trying to work out where, how to use them. Um, do you think, I mean, were you all Star Wars fans or something like that? I mean, was there something... Do you think okay, that, a, lot, a lot of us are Star Wars fans. Mm. Um, a lot of us were fencers, like small mm. fencers, who were just frustrated with the... I honestly think that if the electrification of fencing hadn't happened, the historical martial arts movement may not have developed the way it did. Yeah, yeah. But the SCA has been going for over 50 years now. That was starting about... 1965 or something. Mm. And you know, I interviewed somebody on my show called Stephen Mulberger, who was there pretty much at the beginning. Mm. And he attributes the early success of the SCA to mm. the invention of a machine that made basically... Um, oh, it's, a, it's a thing, you like turn a handle and it cranks out... Copies. Oh, it's a lithograph, isn't it? That's... that's uh, a li- line of t- yeah, I know the one. Line of t- yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a machine that you can make multiple... It's like an yeah. early yeah. photocopier. Yeah. So you can make that newsletters yeah. really easily. 
And when that happened, it became possible to kind of organize all these people into an actual movement. Um, And the SCA has sort of developed a more historical fencing approach Again, at the same sort of time. So in the in the 90s, they started doing rapier stuff as well. They still have the heavy combat stuff that's not, by any reasonable uh, description, historical martial arts. Mm. It is a modern combat sport using some you know, armor and shields and mm. rattan swords and what have you. Yeah. But it's not intended as any kind of historical system. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the leading lights of the historical martial arts world... Mm started out in the SCA and many of them are still in it because the SCA has now grown to include historical fencing, historical cookery, historical clothes making, um, historical calligraphy and making of scrolls and what have you. Um, So there's just a fascination for many people with how things used to be done. And there's a change in kind of the historical approach where, I mean, if you read like any 19th century description of the fencing of their forebears, it is basically, well, Egerton Castle famously wrote about the rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages, which is absolute stinking horseshit. If I ever meet Egerton Castle after I die, I shall slap him about the head and shoulders for saying that. Right? But, you know, the looking back at historical figures and what have you, we have largely stopped thinking of them as somehow less sophisticated than mm. we are. Yeah. Right? And that sort of opened the way to going, well, hang on, how they were using their swords is probably better than anything I can figure out for myself because mm. they're living in a sword culture. Mm. The, these people know their stuff. Right. I could teach them how to use an iPhone, but they can certainly teach me how to use a sword. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that also is a necessary kind of shift in sort of how we look at the past. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, you were saying about how sophisticated the culture of the yeah. medieval Britain was. Yeah. Right. That's something that nobody would have said 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was sort of the dark ages, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And there's this sort of assumption that because they hadn't developed calculus yet, they mm. weren't clever enough to do it, to do mm. so, which is just not true. Yeah. They just didn't have the necessary yeah. leader yeah. to create it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, they, yeah, basically there was people as clever as us and, uh, um, you know, on the sword fencing uh, side, it was literally a matter of life and death. So it was likely right. to put more into it, really, than even even the most committed person like yourself. It's, it's Absolutely. You know, if, if I went back to the Middle Ages mm. and I actually had a go at fencing someone, mm. if I held my own for three whole seconds, I would yeah. be very pleased with myself. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be doing well, yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean they, were, they were tough people. Tough and trained and motivated and... Yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, Fiore de Liberi's book, mm. um, Fiore de Battaglia, written in around 1400, it is a simple, because all, fun, all fighting systems have to be simple, but sophisticated take on knightly combat. 
Mm. Right, and it's a single unified vision of the art of arms mm. expressed across wrestling, dagger, sword, sworded armor, mm. parallax, spear, spear on horseback, sword on horseback, wrestling on horseback, and then fighting on foot against people on horseback. Yeah. Right, and it, but it's a single artistic vision that is consistently and comprehensively laid out in manuscript form. Yeah. Gosh. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I've been working this like 20 years full-time. Mm. He had, he'd been working for about 40 years full-time by that point. So I'm hoping that in 20 years' time, I might be able to lay out my consistent vision of the art of arms across a single manuscript. At the moment, I just, I'm like, like writing book after book after book. of Here's one corner of it. Okay, have a look at that. Here's another corner of it. Have a look at that. Yeah, I'm decades away from the unified vision, I think. Mm. Indeed. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because it's also interested in that what happened amongst um, amongst martial artists like yourself was paralleled amongst uh, blacksmiths. Um, right, right, absolutely. Because um, again, I've been talking to a number. Uh, do you know Owen, Owen Bush? And um, you I may don't know. Him, but I do know quite a few sword makers. Yeah, I don't yeah. happen to know that one. Um, but uh, talking to him and a few others as well, it um, it seems like pretty well much at the same sort of time you had uh, blacksmiths beginning to try and work out how to make weapons and um, uh, implements from the past using the methods they had available. Right. And then again, you had the same thing where uh, forums became available around about the turn of the millennium, which led mm-hmm. to an explosion and sh- of sharing of knowledge to um, uh, to make it possible. And now then. You know, making some wonderful recreations of um, medieval and early medieval weapons. Absolutely. I, I own some of them. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> a marvellous creation. But um, it's a fascinating example there of, of experimental archaeology, of trying to actually, you know, do things, um, make things with the methods and t- techniques available, and then seeing actually just how sophisticated and, um, you know, um, incredible those techniques were within the context of what they had available at the time. Right. Uh, yeah, I have a friend called J.T. Palika, who is a simply astonishing bladesmith. And he, he lives in Finland, and so he's like gone around the Finnish collections, and he, he creates, recreates a lot of the sort of weapons from the period that we're talking about. And yeah, he does absolutely flawless work, mm. and he has done quite a lot of the sort of his um, uh, reconstructive archaeology side of things. But he's like, you know, these smiths—they're just better than we were. Yeah, because they they could do this absolutely astonishing pattern welding in an open forge. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I, I know, and you know, modern smiths—they have, they have ovens well, where they can set the temperature to within a degree or two. They have forges where they can set the temperature to within a few degrees. They have um, these power hammers that take the place of all these apprentices, and and still, their work, while it's fabulous, isn't better than what was being done. Yeah, no, exactly. So um, it's it's you know that's that's probably part of the reason why uh, an element towards why we 
can accept that people in the past were so good at what they did because you know now you're actually trying to do it and you realize just how hard it was yeah, yeah. and um, yeah i used to work as a cabinet maker and i've had an interest in sort of medieval mm. furniture mm. making mm. techniques and what have you mm. and i've had the privilege of working next to some third generation cabinet makers mm. right there's this old guy place I used to work called Ronnie Keir who was mm. a raging alcoholic mm. and if he had just enough alcohol in him he was a genius and a bit too much he was dangerously useless and a bit too little he was dangerously useless but get the alcohol amount just right and he, he would move he was, just, he was off this frail 60 something but 60 going on 80 because of the alcohol um, but I saw him once cut a plinth for a chest of drawers which had eight feathered mitres in the corners wow right a feathered mitre some listeners won't, won't get that so uh, you have two pieces of wood coming together their edges coming together at they're cut at 45 degrees so they meet at 90 and then the feather is a groove that runs across that Mm. all the way down and through that stops it from slipping and sliding so it makes the joint stronger wow. okay. yeah. right and he he had he, he, he took the, the bits of wood he was going to use mm. right and got on the circular saw mm. and the these eight feather writers were glued up in clamps the whole thing all the joints were cut and the whole thing was glued up 25 minutes later I was like, that would have taken me all day. Yeah. Right? And he did it in 25 minutes because there was no hesitation. There was no... He didn't even measure it, really. Right? He, he could just see it because he'd been brought up to it and trained to it. And so an awful lot of the sort of messing around that we do trying to figure stuff out, they just, they've been taught it by their... Yeah. You know, like uncle or whatever whoever they were working for whoever they were apprenticed to they've just been brought up to it this is how you do it and by the time you've done it a thousand times you don't have to think about it and it becomes unbelievably fast and like measuring stuff right totally unnecessary I actually have a I, I try this as an experiment forgive me if I'm going wildly off topic but I made this little chest of drawers um, I'll just turn the camera around so you, you can see it I'll put a stick picture in the show notes so a little chest of drawers under my monitor which has like my pens because I'm a bit of a pen freak and it's all kind of dovetailed together and just for fun I thought I would I needed this the width measurement to make sure the monitor stand would fit and I needed the depth measurement for the same reason and the height so I had this meant the width the depth and the height okay and I had those in inches or centimeters I forget doesn't matter right those are the only measurements I took the entire project right because once you have the, the boards cut to the right length and width and you join them together that gives you the internal dimensions and they're just there you then fit the drawers to whatever that width is you take the piece of wood and you offer it up to the gap and you make a mark and that gives you the, the length which is much more accurate than running it through a sort of intervening step. Yeah, Converting this absolute length into this approximation in 
feet and inches or yeah. millimeters or whatever, yeah. and then taking that and putting it yeah. onto this other piece of wood. Right, you're basically you're leaving out one whole step in which errors may yeah. occur. Yeah. Um, and it was really kind of instructive because when we look at woodworking tools from the period, they look really kind of rough and scruffy and what have you, and they don't have micrometers. Right now, when I'm doing modern woodworking stuff, I'm often using vernier calipers to measure up little pieces and what have you, right? I mean, they're, I use them so often that they're, they're hanging up on the, on the tool board of the, of the tools I use all the time. They didn't need that back then, right? And, you know, we go to extraordinary lengths to get the soles of our planes perfectly flat, right? And we polish the flats of our plane irons perfectly flat and polished up to like 8,000 grit or whatever, right? And, it, yeah, sure, it makes... All sorts of things much easier. Mm. But that's not what they were doing back then, and their joints fit amazingly well. Yeah. Like, I went to Dublin about, must be 20 years ago. Mm. And of course, you go to the Guinness Brewery. Mm. By far, the most impressive moment of that entire trip, that's including all of Dublin, mm. right? In the Guinness Brewery sort of tour thing, they showed me a video of what it used to be like of a cooper making the barrels, right? And he would take a, an oak stave, and a cooper's plane is about five or six feet long. It's propped up at one end, and you run the wood over the plane, okay? And he would take this piece of oak, and he Squint up at it, point it up at the light, squint up at it and go, okay, on the plane, and squint up at it and go, yeah, fine, done. And then next one, and then he, he fitted them all together, and they were watertight. Right, literally, it's a barrel for putting Guinness in. Right, it's like, holy shit, that's craftsmanship. Right, you just see it. You don't have to measure it. You just see it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you see. And that's the difference, isn't it? We're trying to recreate something that um, people did like that in the past. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And And they're often often wrong. wrong. Yeah. That's the thing. It's when you just see it and you know it, you don't question it. Yeah. And so you get to that certain level... But you're, but you're not, not going to make, make a paradigm, paradigm change in your, your field, field. Mm. right? Mm. Or you're, you're unlikely like to. to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's but when, when you're, you're sort of struggling, struggling with mess mm. is when, when you come, come up with a paradigm change yeah. that yeah. advances the field by a major step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't manage it the other way. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, brilliant. Okay, okay. Is, that, <laughs> is that is that what you wanted to ask? Well, yeah, I think that's um, that's. Um, what, what was the most impressive thing you saw on your trip to Dublin twenty years ago? Yeah, no, well, it's, uh, okay, it, but it's it's all part of part and parcel of it. It's the it's yeah, the appreciation yeah. of that you know people in the past were just just as bright as uh, they are today and um, did extraordinary things. 
right, right. and they, they had, had skills, skills. Mm. That, that to us these, these days, days would look like, like magic. magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the, right. yeah. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because we obviously have technologies that they'd regard as magical, but uh, say in the other direction, they have had skills that we, we <laughs> would appear magical to us as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah fascinating. Good. Well, oh, thank you, guy. Oh, well, <laughs> my pleasure. So. Uh, why don't I, 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 I pretend this is a regular podcast interview and, and, and I'll, I'll wrap it up. <laughs> so, Marty, thank you for coming on to the podcast. <laughs> it's been fascinating talking to you about Viking stuff, about Anglo-Saxon stuff. And, and I, you know what? I absolutely know that a bunch of my listeners are going to be going, God's sake, guy. Why didn't, didn't you ask him this, 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 and this? What about Warhammer? So, well, <laughs> well, Warhammer being one, one yeah. and, and like specifics about Anglo-Saxon Anglo stuff being another. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so what's probably going to happen is they're going to email me saying, God, why didn't you ask Eduardo this? Right? So tell you what, when that deluge of emails say, guy, you've completely failed as an interviewer, Come in. I will, I will, I will be in touch and we'll get you back on for a proper interview. Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And um, it'd be great. Uh, and actually, if um, if we could ever meet up and actually you show me face-to-face what you mean about the swords. Oh, we could do it. it. Yeah. Because you're, well, you're, you're not in... Fin- you're in... You're in I'm in Italy. Yeah, in Italy. I'm five miles from Sutton. Oh, fantastic. Okay, that'd be brilliant. Okay, yeah, we'll sort that out. That'd be brilliant. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eduardo. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And thanks to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when we will be having the December Challenge. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I think you might like this one. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. (laughs) 